If there's anything better than getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's, it's getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's for less in the McDonald's app. Mm. Delicious. Order in the McDonald's app today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Right now, only in the app. Enjoy a breakfast sandwich for just $1, like a sausage McMuffin with egg. Offer valid one time per day from 429 to 512 at participating McDonald's. Must opt into rewards. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So after the dust settled and I woke up the next day, I probably felt all the emotions. I was happy I had 20K in my hand, like that's a good thing. Disappointed that it wasn't more relative to what I had just lost. I probably still had some disbelief that I had just done what I did. That was pretty far out of my normal behavior, but we did it, you know what I mean? Apparently, a side effect of successfully robbing a casino is the hangover of mixed emotions the following day. After that, what prevailed wasn't relief at having gotten away with it. It wasn't paranoia brought on by the sheer insanity of what he had just done. No, Tony Carleo's mind emerged from the fog with one prevailing thought. Figuring out the next, bigger, better casino to rob. And this one would be a score that, in theory, could solve all of his problems. Permanently. From Waveland and Pegalo Pictures, this is the High Roller Heist. I'm your host, Chris Sims. Chapter 3, Go Time. This is a Channel 8 special presentation. From the priceless art gallery, to the picturesque Italian shoreline, to the breathtaking fountains. From high rollers to romance, welcome to the Bellagio. Over the years... I've visited the Bellagio numerous times on trips to Vegas. The first time, it was an overwhelming, opulent structure, a maze of excess and opportunity. Today, however, it feels gaudy and dated. A concrete box next to the sleeker, more inviting glass structures that line the strip. But in October of 1998, the opening of the Bellagio Resort and Casino represented a turning point for the city of Las Vegas.
While the kitschy, bottom-line-driven casinos had dominated Vegas over the first decade of the new corporate era, the Bellagio's opening promised luxury, true luxury, an alien concept in the seedy adult fantasy land known as Sin City. At the cost of $1.6 billion, the Bellagio was once the most expensive resort of any kind ever built anywhere in the world, which is exactly what owner Steve Wynn wanted it to be. It boasted a 150,000-square-foot casino and about 4,000 rooms spread across two towers and nearly 30 floors, a lush indoor botanical garden, a conservatory, a mall featuring internationally coveted designer brands, and its own fine art gallery displaying works by masters like Matisse, Picasso, Renoir, Monet, and Van Gogh. The largest glass sculpture in the world hangs above the lobby, a breathtaking collage of over 2,000 colorful glass-blown flowers. But the Bellagio's most notable feature, even today, is its dancing fountains, synchronized geysers of water that put on a show two to four times an hour, every half day, on the eight-and-a-half-acre man-made lake in front of the casino's facade on South Las Vegas Boulevard. Over the past 25 years, these fountains have been featured in just about every movie or television show set in Las Vegas, and they are just as much a part of the city's iconography as its flickering neon. Based on available figures and some very roughed-out mathematics by our producers, the Bellagio's casino was clearing well over a million dollars on an average day in late 2010, and that's on the lower end of our calculations. This behemoth, this symbol of Las Vegas luxury and wealth, this high-class refuge for big spenders, would be Tony Carleo's next target. And he would rob it a mere five days after the Sun Coast. I'm not sure exactly why I did the Bellagio five days after the Sun Coast. I can't honestly tell you that I had even 100% made up my mind that I was gonna do this again. But what kicked that ball past the goal line was the fact that I only got 18 or 19 grand from the Sun Coast. I was like, oh, I, I need to do that again. While money was undoubtedly at the root of all of Tony's decisions at this point, his full-blown drug addiction was a close second, often driving and clouding many of his actions. So the amount of drugs I was using was probably enough to kill a mule. There were Oxycontin 80 milligram pills and I really only ingested like one or two of them as they were intended orally. The rest of them, I'm crushing them, grinding them up and snorting them or smoking them off foilies to finish off what you couldn't get ground up, you know, little remnants of the pills. I needed to take care of the pain at the time and then obviously it just escalates as time goes on. The apex of my use, I was told I used between 12 and 15, 80 milligrams a day. To put that into perspective, if you were in severe pain or had some uh, bad medical diagnosis, they might give you three or four of those in a 24-hour period. I was using between five and nine a day, I would say, and I'm crushing them up, snorting them in one dose. It was like they were coming out of a Pez dispenser. That wasn't sustainable, the number I was doing. I not only was addicted like chemically to them, but some of it was the ritual 
There was a social aspect to it. You know, you have little drug friends and you kind of just get together. And that kind of became what you did with each other. There was a point, it was like probably a, one of the lower points during my addiction. I didn't have any or I couldn't get them. And uh, I tracked somebody down and had her sell me some heroin. And she actually told me like, you don't want to do this. You know what I mean? And I was like, no, I'm sick, I need it. And it got to the point where I um, had it uh, drawn up in a needle and I had it in my arm. And um, it was such a disgusting sight, like looked like diarrhea water. And I was close to plunging that into my vein and I just didn't. I'm very uh, grateful that I didn't follow through with that. I pulled it out and shot it in the toilet and dealt with the discomfort until I could uh, get some more pills. I spent so much time, energy, effort, just procuring the drugs. It was kind of a security thing. Like if I didn't have 30 to 40 pills, I would start to get anxiety about it. You know what I mean? Because I know at some point you're gonna run out. I remember <laughs> I was in UNLV's parking lot. It was uh, before my biology final. I had like a B plus in the class and I had a pretty good grasp on everything. I probably would have, at the very least, got a B on the final and been cool. I was in the parking lot doing oxy, like snoring them, doing whatever, and I nodded off. Dude, I slept through my whole final. I flunked the whole fucking class because my dumb ass was in a parking lot, like doing lines. And I was just like, God, oh, dude, you're a fucking idiot. You know what I mean? So it just uh, consumed me. Mixed in with everything, with the greed, the chemicals, and the insatiable addiction, was Tony's pride. He'd flunked out of med school, and that was supposed to be his fresh start. He'd lost tens of thousands of dollars gambling, a Las Vegas degenerate like so many others wandering the Strip. The only thing he'd done right recently was rob a casino, which was no small feat. The Sun Coast gave me the balls and the brazenness, you know, it was so easy and simple. It, it, it was like a false sense of security to go ahead and do the Bellagio robbery. I don't want to say I had a definitive plan. I just knew something was going to happen. I needed a few pieces to fall into place, and it was going to be go time. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex, of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know wherever you get your podcasts. Tony had been toying with robbing a casino for at least two months before hitting the Sun Coast. He had quietly cased just about every gambling establishment he visited in Vegas, a sort of secret hobby, compiling research in the event that this dark fantasy ever became a reality. And now, finally, he was putting it to use. So when one is planning to rob a casino, you need to consider 
like logistics, right? Like the schematics and the layout and whatever you're gonna rob or steal, the distance to the exit, you know, I'm not like a genius on any of this, it's just common sense. The cage is in the middle of the casino. That's probably a pretty good place to keep all your money. It's pretty far from any exit door. A lot of obstacles to get to before you get to there. I had a pretty elaborate, crazy plan where I was going to ride my motorcycle through the shops at the Venetian. I was gonna ride into the actual casino. Like that was on my radar and um, I don't think that would have been a very good idea, but it was on the to-do list. To the point where I actually walked through the property and I even went as far as, <laughs> it was so stupid. I went down to a Halloween store and bought the most ridiculous fake beard mask that I could find. I mean, I'm walking around the strip at four or five in the morning and I went to go play poker at one of these places. Of course, they ID'd me because I looked like a psychopath. And I'm like, oh, okay, well that's out because now they have my ID on the camera. The MGM is a nightmare. Getting in and out of there, there's a lot of variables when you're running from somebody on a motorcycle, I would imagine. Caesars was also not ideal. Their driveway is on the property a lot, right? Like, so you're, you're gonna be on Caesars property for quite a bit. The Bellagio worked because it had that little auxiliary entrance and exit, and because of its proximity to the side street, literally pull out of there and you're on a road. Uh, you don't have to drive up and down the strip and uh, deal with all that nonsense. I ended up ultimately settling on the Bellagio because I love that. I love the place, the ambient, the smell. They have this flower smell in the air. It's, uh, it's a beautiful thing, a lot of action, good players, good people, gorgeous cocktail waitresses. Kind of sad I can't go back there, but I don't think I'm welcome there anymore. Tony was also wary of providing more evidence to investigators with this second, more high-profile robbery. The Suncoast had generated virtually no public attention, which to Tony likely meant law enforcement wasn't putting a ton of resources into cracking the case. But the Bellagio? He knew a robbery there would certainly garner attention. A lot of it. So my first gun was pretty distinctive. It was a metal gun. It had a wooden handle and brass fittings. And uh, it was a good-looking gun, but you could definitely pick it out of a crowd if you had to. So I didn't want any similarities between the two jobs. Figured that's low-hanging fruit. Tony set out to buy a new gun, one which couldn't be traced or connected to him. So let's go buy a gun in a parking lot at Circus Circus, right? Like, who doesn't want to do that? And that meant a visit to the underbelly of Las Vegas. The dude I bought this gun from was, I can't tell you exactly how we met, but he was cool enough, he was in my phone, I knew him, and we, we partied a couple nights. He was a gangbanger dude, you know what I mean? I think he went by Deuce Deuce or Deuce Three or something. I hit him up and I asked him if he had access to one and he did. So I met at the Circus Circus parking lot. That's probably not the only nefarious thing that goes down at Circus Circus parking lot. You've never bought a gun from a nondescript human being on a parking lot at a casino? You've never done that? missing out, man, you ain't living. I gave him for two, 300 bucks. I don't even know if it fired, you know? Probably had bodies on it, who knows, right? The casing of casinos, figuring out access points to get in and out, finding a hot gun, those were the easy parts. But as was the case with the Suncoast, Tony would need help to pull this off. So he turned to Kara Carenti, who, at first, thought Tony was full of shit. 
Even after he told me he robbed the Suncoast, I didn't believe it because it wasn't on the news. I mean, you'd have to be crazy to think that you could get away with something like that. I just thought he was talking a big game and just being stupid. Once Kara realized he wasn't bluffing, she became involved in the preparations for the Bellagio heist. It's a, a blur. I don't really remember much of it. He did have me help him with some things. He wanted to park his bike somewhere or, or something like that. And I was just along for the ride. I was watching him prepare for the robbery. I didn't realize that he was going to follow through. And I just was, I was really, really fucked up at that time. I was really, really a disaster with the pills. And I wasn't thinking clearly. And I know that sounds like an excuse, but it's the truth. I wasn't in reality at all, at all. Perhaps Tony recognized this, so he recruited another set of eyes and ears. Someone who had just as much to lose as he did, if they got caught. So there was a gentleman that helped me. He didn't play a big part, and I don't even think he believed that I was going to do this. I've never told anybody who he is. We'll call him Drew, though. And Drew was the boyfriend of a stripper who I met through a random stripper I picked up on the strip. If you got lost there, that's okay. Let me walk you through this Vegas version of Six Degrees of Separation. Drew, the pseudonym for Tony's accomplice in the Bellagio robbery, whom he has never revealed, was the boyfriend of a stripper who was friends with the stripper who Tony picked up on the strip a few months prior. Okay, Tony, carry on. She was really fine. She was wearing a schoolgirl outfit, white stockings up to the knees, the whole nine yards. She's walking down the strip. I'm in my Lexus. I look over and holler at her and ask her if she needed a ride, just expecting her to tell me to fuck off, and I'll be damned. She got in the car, dude. We messed around a little bit, did some drugs, and she'd asked me if I could get Oxycontins. One of her friends uh, wanted them. Hannah was her name. Her boyfriend's name will remain Drew. But Hannah was an exotic dancer, and Hannah basically supported my lifestyle, right? So Hannah would go work her ass off for a day and a half, two days, stripping. And she would get off work. She would blow me up at like 3, 4, 5 in the morning whenever she got off work until I answered, like repetitive, just calling and calling and calling. I would finally answer my phone, and she would literally bring me between $2,500 and $5,000 for pills. So this dude, Drew, would have to drive her happy ass just to go get these pills. That's how his and I relationship kind of got formed. We spent quite a bit of time together because that's what people do to do drugs. You kind of gravitate toward each other. I just thought I could trust him, so we gave him a call to the bullpen and brought him in. While Tony had revealed to Kara and Drew what he was planning to do, neither of them really thought he'd actually go through with it. But they also couldn't say no, or didn't want to. After all, he was their steady supply of oxy. So I actually had C go buy all this shit I needed at the store, right? Like gloves, duct tape, the phones, gave her uh, cash. So they really uh, would have been hard to trace. 
So I went and bought two burner phones. I bought two Bluetooth headsets. I bought duct tape to tape my helmet up uh, in a different color. I went and actually swapped shoes with him. I was wearing Drew's shoes because I didn't want my shoes on camera. Completely different random wardrobe. Everything was different, right? So my car was at C's house and I had my motorcycle and I ended up going to uh, um, Drew's house and just started getting geared up. I give him the phone, give him the Bluetooth, plug each other's numbers into the burner phone. I had my helmet on when I was doing the crime, so all I wanted to do was like hit my helmet and it would dial the last number that was dialed. Prior to both crimes, like I just tried to do the little things that would at least give me a chance to succeed, right? Like I wiped the bullets down in the gun, I wiped the gun down itself, I made sure I wore gloves. I didn't go as far as to shave my entire body because that seemed a little much, but I did have multiple layers of clothes on and, uh, you know, I had the helmet on and I wasn't too concerned about the hair. So I just tried, I don't know, tried to do everything that I could control to not get caught because that was, that was the goal. Timing would also be key. The later, the better, as there would be fewer people in the casino and fewer chances for unforeseen complications, like citizen vigilantes or crowds of tourists who could slow a quick getaway. It's gonna go down around two or three or four in the morning. That's usually what, the times that I had been there, I noticed the security was minimal. I remember before I left, I crushed up uh, an 80 milligram oxy, took that right down the hatch. I think it did a line of cocaine to get uh, back up and I hit my inhaler. Cause again, I'm asthmatic and we didn't want to have an asthma attack. I did some light stretching too. There was a little bit more of a jog from the door to the craps table uh, at the Bellagio. I get on the bike, it's fucking 20 degrees in Vegas. I have to be the only asshole on a motorcycle in the city, right? There's nobody riding motorcycles at four or five in the morning when it's 20 degrees outside, it was cold. I didn't have a plate on the bike. I'm just doing my thing, going for a leisurely stroll on the motorcycle. I got the Richard Nixon mask on in case any camera, like traffic cameras can see me. You know, I'm not a crook type thing. Because I had a clear visor, so that's why I wear the mask. I have uh, Drew leave 30 to 45 minutes ahead of me, right? He's, and his objective was, I gave him, I think I gave him 500 or 1,000 bucks. I told him to go sit down at a slot machine and just wait for me to call. Just act like he's belong there, get a drink, just fit in, right? Like just you're just some asshole playing slots at three in the morning in Vegas. So he did his thing, he pulled in, parked, went and played slots. And uh, I'm doing my thing, riding there. I had a weird, just like calmness and tranquility about me when I was on the ride over there, despite being fucking 20 degrees outside and uncomfortable physically, I, I really didn't have the same um, apprehension that I had on the Sun Coast. I obeyed all the traffic laws on the way there. I didn't want any, you know, get pulled over for no plates on a motorcycle, uh, anything like that. I was a little bit more matter of fact when I pulled up to the Bellagio. There are access points on all sides of the Bellagio. 
The one Tony strategically chose was just off of East Flamingo Road, a small crescent-shaped drive often meant for VIP patrons being dropped off by private cars or limousines, allowing the most direct access to the high-end luxury shops and high-stakes poker rooms in the casino. That was where I parked the motorcycle. I remember getting off, dropped a kickstand. I could kind of lean my bike over and rotate it around. So it was just leaning on the kickstand and you just swing the ass end around. I actually left the key in the bike on purpose. So it was one less step I had to do. That was probably a mistake in hindsight. Somebody could have stole the bike. That would have been all that. But I had a spare key on me too in case somebody took the key. I just figured I'd need to be getting out of there in a hurry once the shit hit the fan. I got off the bike and I just hit the headset and the phone rang and Drew picked up. Yo. And I'm like, what's it look like in there? And he said something to the effect of if, if you're gonna do it, now's the time. And I said, okay, it's go time. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. It's just past four in the morning, on the 14th of December in 2010, and Tony Carleo is standing in the small, crescent-shaped valet driveway at the Bellagio Resort in full motorcycle gear and helmet, backpack slung in front over his chest, a loaded pistol in his front zipper pocket. Inside the casino, a drug buddy turned accomplice is sitting at a slot machine, scouting the gaming floor and communicating with him via Bluetooth headset, which Tony had wired inside of his motorcycle helmet. He was about to cross the point of no return. He said, if you're going to do it, now's the time. And I said, okay, it's go time. And I thought I hung up the phone, like I hit the headset. But in hindsight, I found out that I didn't hang up the phone. With his accomplice still listening in, Tony started walking up the driveway. It was time to rob the largest casino in the world. I walk up the circular driveway. There's a little female security guard. Uh, they have a little guard booth off to the right there. I, I remember waving to her. There was a dude talking on his cell phone, like pacing back and forth in front of the doors. And I'm a nice guy, so I hold the door open for him. And he walks right by me. I think he even said, thank you. We're inside. Um, I go right. Uh, right ahead of me is a Cartier store, which was on my to-do list. Once you make that right-hand turn, 
you kept going straight, you'd run right into the poker room. That was also on the to-do list. And then to the left, there's this main walkway. That main walkway leads to the center of the casino and where the cage was, which coincidentally was where the craft table was. So I took that right and then I hugged the wall. To anyone on the floor or to any casino security watching the cameras, they would have seen a figure in a full motorcycle jumpsuit and helmet now easing along the wall. Something that should raise red flags to even the most casual observer. But at the hour of four in the morning, in mid-December of 2010, when security had been cut back due to the recession America now found itself in, no one was watching. Drew told me there was maybe 15, 20 patrons in the, on the casino floor. I don't remember seeing any other security personnel other than the um, guard shack gal that I saw when I first walked in. I had my left hand on, on the firearm. There was uh, two stick men, you know, the guys using the sticks on the craps table, a box man, and a pit boss. And I think there was like maybe four guys shooting craps. And it was the only action there, it was like dead, right? Especially for the Bellagio. And it was just simple and methodical, man. Like once I got parallel to the craps table, I made a right-hand turn and I walked up to the back of the table. I said, move. Move! The only person that got hurt in this whole thing was somebody that like did a fucking unnecessary barrel roll to get out of the way, like in a, in a might be watch too many action movies or something. And I'm just there doing my thing, shoveling these uh, casino chips in my little backpack pouch. The ones I wanted were 5,000s, and you got 1,000s, and you got 500s, and you got 100s, and you got 25s, 5s, and 1s. They're pretty organized, they're deep. There had to be four or five million dollars. Most of that dollar amount being in the $25,000 chips. I accidentally grabbed the $25,000 chips. A lot of people said I shouldn't have taken them. Yeah, no shit. I know they're no good. I should have been more methodical. But that adrenaline kicks in, man, and you're just like, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, you know? And that adrenaline really punched me in the mouth. Once I grab all the chips, like, I just turn around and book it. Fight or flight's kicked in. I'm not fast, so I know I have to get a head start. Somebody might chase me. If I had my way that night, I was gonna make a pit stop in the poker room because the amount of money is pretty significant. Then on the way out the door, they have the uh, Cartier jewelry store, and I was gonna grab some jewelry. None of those things happened. I was running, I got this fucking Richard Nixon mask on, I can barely breathe. And, you know, you've, everybody's seen the footage of me running down the corridor. I think in and out, I was like three minutes and 58 seconds. And by that time, they had to have gotten on the radio. Police probably had already been called. The valet attendant, he thought it would be a good idea to get in between me and my motorcycle. I pointed the gun at him and I said, move. And he's like, don't do it, man, don't do it. He got the fuck out of the way and started the bike up and I was out of there.
If I went east, it takes me right to the strip, and that's the opposite direction. You know, I want to go west, and man, that shit really got weird from there. Speeding down I-15 with over a million dollars in stolen Bellagio chips in his backpack, Tony Carleo was suddenly the most wanted man in Las Vegas. Now, of course, he just had to get away. There was a moment where I'm at a stoplight. I'm in the left-hand turn lane. And on my left is a police officer. I'm just waiting for him to make a move. He's probably waiting for me to make a move. I'm just sitting there like this, got my turn signal on. Just some dude on a bike, man. You know what I mean? Like, pay me no attention. That's next time on The High Roller Heist. This episode of The High Roller Heist was created and produced by Eli Chorus and Joshua Schaefer of Pegalo Pictures and executive produced by Jason Hoke of Waveland. Written by Eli Chorus. Edited by Joshua Schaefer. Hosted and co-produced by me, Chris Sims. Co-produced with interviews recorded by Nicholas Sinakis. Theme music and score by Joshua Cleve. With sound design and sound mixing by Craig Plackey and host narration recorded by David Custard at CCM Studios in Denver, Colorado. A special thanks to the Denver Chop House and Brewery. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a review. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts.